This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor, and... Me, Belinda Smith. <laughs> Coming up in the show, I'm going to be talking about how we could reduce out-of-pocket healthcare costs. And Belle, what are you going to be talking about? Well, how about I answer in the form of a little snippet? I sort of refer to it as my first fermentation. <laughs> <laughs> is she making beer? <laughs> uh, let's find out. We're, we're going to be talking to Marlene about how it feels to be told to you're going to be using an ostomy bag and whether poo transplants can help with mental illness. Two different stories. Okay. <laughs> so, Teagues, what's caught your eye in health news this week? Well, I've been seeing a lot of stuff of people uh, reacting to the public health alerts about Japanese encephalitis virus. And I thought it'd be worth kind of clearing up a little bit about what it is and how worried we should be. It's in four states now, Queensland, New South Wales, Vic, and now South Australia, and it's got people a bit freaked out. And I suppose the short answer to the question is, should I be worried, is be alert but not alarmed as long as you're not a pig farmer. If you're a pig farmer, it's bad news. It can do some some bad stuff to pigs. Uh, But mostly its life cycle is in mosquitoes and water birds. But what really got me is that even though Japanese encephalitis virus is endemic in countries that aren't far from Australia, places like Papua New Guinea and Indonesia, it has been known to pop up in the Torres Strait at various times. But I spoke to Roy Hall, who's a professor of virology at the University of Queensland, and he says it's unprecedented for Japanese encephalitis as far as to be found as far south, well, even as like Queensland, let alone places like Vic and SA. And it's uh, unsurprisingly, given that it's a mosquito virus, it's it's part of this extremely wet weather that's ferried it down the coast. And basically, he said that it's a really it's a really strong signal that climate change can what climate change can do to the whole health ecosystem. So it affects mm. mozzies birds, pigs, and then it can affect humans. It's unpredictable, so it's hard to prepare. We don't know yet whether it's going to be endemic, but for the average punter, protecting yourself from being bitten by a mosquito is going to protect you against JEV, and it's also going to protect you against other serious viruses like Ross River virus and other things that can cause disease more commonly in Australia. Mm. See, I'm a bit of a mozzie magnet. I'm the one always getting bitten at Barbies. And I did see in the last week that there's a vaccine against JEV, so I don't really need to worry about I mean, getting a vaccine could, against you it. Could, you can get vaccinated if you want. It is in the Australian Immunisation Register. It's basically huh. uh, recommended for people travelling to endemic countries for a long period of time or people who work in high-risk situations. So, Belle, unless you're planning on hanging out in a pigsty for a long period, you're mm. probably okay. Okay, good Good to hear. I'll just uh, take visit to a pig farm off my, list, my to-do list this week. What have you been looking at? Well, my story combines two of my interests, human evolution and uh-huh. lower back pain, uh, because I'm, I'm one of the vast majority of Australians who will have lower back pain at some point in their life. Same. So, <laughs> so this is an American study. It was published last week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences Nexus Journal, and it compared the shape of lower spine like backbones of modern humans, that's us, homo sapiens, to those from our extinct cousins, the Neanderthals. And specifically, they looked at the degree of lumbar lordosis, so the amount of the small of your back curves inwards. And we know that Neanderthals had curved lower backs, but less curved than ours. And so it was thought that it was something innate, that Neanderthals and homo sapiens were fundamentally different when it came to that bit of the body. But these researchers found that that was only the case if you compared Neanderthals with post-industrial humans, like you and me. 
When they compared Neanderthal spines with those from pre-industrial Homo sapiens, that difference in lumbar curvature disappeared. So the researchers suggest that the degree to which our lower back curves inwards isn't locked in from birth. It's not innate in our population, but it's related to activity and lifestyle while we're growing up. So that's using furniture, doing less physical activity. And so to compensate, our backbones develop slightly differently in more of a wedge shape, and that contributes to that curve in the small of our back. What about modern humans that live more traditional lifestyles? Yeah, so this study didn't look at that aspect of, you know, modern humans. They really just looked at basically Western society, right? Uh, But they do say that that is something that should be looked into. And, you know, of course, we don't know if Neanderthals had bad backs (laughs) and we can't see the state of their soft tissue like the discs between the vertebra. And that also contributes to how curved our spine is. But, you know, the study is really limited to the handful of of fossils there are. But it's something to think about. So, like you say, a lot of Australians uh, live with lower back pain as well as other chronic medical conditions and not to make light of it. But uh, the last time you or me or the people listening had a medical appointment, it probably cost money out of pocket. There was probably a gap to pay at the GPs. Maybe you needed to pay for pathologies tests or scans or there perhaps were specialist fees on top of that, depending on what your condition is. Australia is really lucky to have Medicare, which is our universal health scheme, and it allows public hospital care to be free and lots of services outside of hospital provided without out-of-pocket costs. But a new report has shown that there are big gaps in what's covered and lots of people simply can't afford to cover the difference. And, of course, that means it's the poorest and the sickest, the people who need the most health care, who miss out on the most. So Stephen Duckett is one of the authors of this report from the Grattan Institute and he joins us now. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Tegan. Where does the cost lie when we're looking at uh, out-of-pocket health care? So across the board, really, um, in our report, we looked at medical services and pharmaceutical benefit scheme uh, prescriptions, and there, there's a, a lot of the, the out-of-pockets fall there. Um, but there's also out-of-pockets in private hospitals. There are out-of-pockets in non-pharmaceutical benefit scheme prescriptions, so over-the-counter. There's uh, allied health. So there's right across the board. And surprisingly, Australia has a very high proportion of our health care met by out-of-pockets relative to other countries, and and we spend more on out-of-pockets in Australia per capita than the United States does. Wow. So your report has sort of detailed this and also made some recommendations on how we could improve this to improve people's access to care. What are some of your biggest top-line recommendations? Well, as I said, there are lots of areas where out-of-pockets occur. We looked at medical specialists. And if you, if in contrast to a GP, about 90% of GP services are bulk billed, but only about 48% or so of uh, medical specialist attendances out of hospital are uh, bulk billed. And so we said one of the things to fix up is this medical specialist scene. And, for example, we said there's two, there are a couple of ways of doing it, a number of ways we can do it, and we should do all of them. So the state government should step up and provide more public hospital outpatients, uh, and we suggest an expansion in that. And the, the, you, there's also room to improve efficiency by uh, improving the number of new patients relative to review patients. We also said the Commonwealth Government should step up and provide bulk billing clinics so that in low-income areas with low rates of bulk billing, we actually provide a private alternative, which uh, means that specialty care would be uh, more accessible. 
Right. So these clinics are specialist clinics that are also bulk billing. What, I mean, these things don't come for free, but then I suppose neither do long-term health conditions. Like what's the equation here uh, between what you're asking governments to spend and what potentially people are spending down the track if these prolonged conditions aren't treated in a timely way? Yeah. So there are two ways of looking at it. In 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 the short term, what we recommended was about 700 million or so of additional uh, government expenditure, and in return, you'd save a billion or so of out-of-pocket. So instead of consumers paying, uh, the the government would pay. Importantly, this is this is a benefit in health terms as well because each of the areas we looked at was where a doctor had recommended the patient do something where the doctor recommend, uh, wrote a prescription, where the doctor recommended the patient do a, have an X-ray, where the doctor recommended the patient see a medical specialist. Right, so, so it's this almost is, like the doctor's the, the customer, not the person who's gone ex- for an appointment. Exactly. And then it's crazy to say, well, there has been medical decision that this is necessary and then the poor old patient can't afford it and so there's obviously going to be a subsequent cost because of delayed care or the situation getting worse or whatever. And so it's in everybody's interest, the patient's interest, the taxpayer's interest, everybody's interest to actually try and get rid of these barriers to this secondary sort of care that we're talking about. Right, there's this financial incentive to not follow your doctor's advice. But for the Federal Health Department put out a statement today saying that Medicare bulk billing has reached a record high uh, in the last quarter of 2021. Like you said before, this statistic of almost 9 out of 10 GP visits were bulk billed. And they say that essential medical care is more affordable than ever. So how does this gel with what you found? Well, of course, their job is to say, the Commonwealth Minister's job is to say things are going well. That doesn't mean to say they can't get better. And the Minister is right Uh, Almost 90% of GP services are bulk billed. About two-thirds of all Australians who go to the doctor have all of their GP services bulk billed. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is medical specialists. What we're talking about is prescriptions. What we're talking about is allied health. So the minister is actually not talking about what we're talking about. He's talking about an area where, by and large, the system is working really well. We're talking about the part of the system which isn't working well, which needs to be improved, and we need to turn our attention to it. So you mentioned two things there, allied health and prescriptions. Can we talk about those a bit? What changes would you like to see there? Well, again, we have a very good uh, pharmaceutical benefits scheme. The medicines are basically affordable, but... If you if you're on a with chronic condition, for example, you're going to use lots of medications, and the the costs add up. And although there's a safety net for for prescriptions, that for a person who's not a healthcare card holder, it cuts in at fifteen hundred dollars, and that's a lot of money that not everybody has. And so what we're saying is there are a couple of things that can be done about that. First of all, there's no if if you've got a chronic condition, there's no particular reason why the the standard prescription couldn't be, instead of a one-month supply, couldn't be for two-month supply. So you actually have less uh, number of times you actually have to go to the chemist to pay the co-payment. So we change the way we write prescriptions. Another thing we could do is say, look, if you're on a lot of medications, uh, you might have had a number of doctors put, put you on those medications and there might be some contraindications for those. So why don't we have a scheme where 
the we analyze the computer analyzes what uh, what's what's happening and how, and whether there might be contraindications and then alerts the doctor and the doctor then says let's do a medication review for this patient and if all of those medications are still needed then the doc, then the patient should be able to drop down to a lower copayment so they can afford what are now pretty clearly necessary medications and it's not just about money when it comes to multiple medications. We've talked about the problems of polypharmacy on this show before. Really briefly, Stephen, if only one of your recommendations was taken on board, what would it be? What should it be? Well, I, I think in the first instance, the government to acknowledge there is a problem. <laughs> and so just to say, yes, we know Medicare is good. We need to make it better. But I think the one that's most important is is not the most expensive one, but is actually moving to have bulk billing clinics around the place and providing more information to GPs about what the fees are that doctors are charging. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure, Tegan. Dr Stephen Duckett is Health and Aged Program Director at the Grattan Institute. What do you make of that, Val? Oh, I, there is also always room for improvement. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Medicare, but my goodness me, I mean, some people with chronic conditions do literally spend thousands of dollars, even with that safety net. So improvements are needed, right? Yeah. And Stephen mentioned allied health there and one of, one of the really important areas, and that is psychology, which very clunkily brings us to the next story <laughs> that you're going to talk to us about. Uh, it has to do with a part of the brain that, a part of the body, sorry, that you probably <laughs> don't associate with your brain. That's right. So this next story is about severe mental illness and poo transplants. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. Talk to me. Just stay with me here. So there have been two Australian case studies recently published in peer-reviewed journals, one in 2020 and the second one was just last month, and they both report people with severe bipolar disorder who independently found their symptoms eased and even went away in the months after they did a faecal microbiota transplantation or poo transplants. This sounds so, like one of those things that you read about on the internet that couldn't possibly be true. Like what does your poo have to do with your your mood and like such a severe mental illness? Yeah, I mean, well, you might, like you said, your gut and your brain, you might think, geez, they're two very, very separate systems. But even more separate, you might think, gosh, all the colonies of microorganisms that live in our gut, which make up a lot of our poo, they're the, the culprits slash saviours in this, in this situation. So they can do this. It's quite complicated, as you might expect, but our gut microbiome, those colonies, trillions and trillions of, of bacteria and fungi and whatnot that live in our gut, their number one job is to help us digest our food so we can squeeze more nutritional value out of it. But while they're doing their thing, living their life, those gut microbes also spit out a whole bunch of chemicals or metabolites. And these can slip through our intestinal wall and into the rest of the body. So they might meet the immune system. Most of our immune cells are concentrated around the gut and some metabolites can activate the immune system, causing inflammation, which is implicated in a whole load of diseases, like depression, for instance. And gut metabolites can also do things like tinker with our hormones and can activate our central stress response system or interact with the 100 million odd nerves embedded in our gut walls. And that's your enteric nervous system and it communicates directly with the brain. And, you know, all of this, you know, your immune system, your hormones, your nervous systems, they're not silos. They're all connected. They're, they all influence each other. So it's not as simple as saying, ah, this gut bacteria causes that symptom, end of. 
Okay, so presumably then if you're getting healthy gut bacteria from someone else, you might be improving your mental health, but other things as well. What do we know about these two case studies that you mentioned? So these two case studies were a woman in her 30s and a man in his 20s, both in New South Wales, uh, and both with drug-resistant bipolar disorder for many years. And so the subject of the first case study, Jane, she really saw faecal transplants as a last resort. So by 2016, she was spending around six weeks a year in hospital and things were about as bad as they could get and they'd been that way for a long time. And it was actually her husband who brought the idea of poo transplants to the table. He's an ecologist, and if anyone understands the importance of a diverse ecosystem, it's an <laughs> ecologist. And he'd read a study where researchers put poo from a depressed mouse into a healthy mouse, and that healthy mouse started acting depressed. So Jane took a bit of persuading, but then she started a course of faecal transplants. And then something happened around the three-month mark where things just started happening, and I started to improve and it wasn't like I just magically woke up one day and I was cured it was like I noticed that my depression started to decrease and then there was one day where I woke up and I had this strange feeling that I had never experienced before I felt good for no reason wow I know right she's coming up to five years without serious depression and almost as long since she was last manic and I also spoke with the subject of the second case study the most recent one and he said something similar that he now knows what normal feels like um, and both were well enough to eventually start winding back their medication but you know it's important to note here that they did it under very close supervision of their psychiatrists so please do not change your medication without consulting your doctor first. And don't put other people's poo in you without consulting a doctor. Yes, that's right. Well. <laughs> okay, so two n equals two in this in this situation. Really compelling, really interesting. But what does the broader science tell us about this? Mm, I know, like like you said, it's an n of two. It's almost unbelievable, right? Like I go into these studies with a big old dose of scepticism, but I've spoken to gastroenterologists and psychiatrists who are completely independent of the case studies and they're satisfied that it's not a placebo effect. And the science is really only just now starting to tease out how these kinds of results can happen. And we sort of have two extremes on one end. Most work done in this area has been in mice and rats. So like the study that Jane's husband read, there's hundreds of these kinds of studies. Then on the other end, we have the occasional human report, like these case studies, as well as a handful of trials that found some people had improved mood after a faecal transplant. And so researchers are now trying to fill in that huge gap in between these groups of research and figure out what's going on in different disorders, what types of faecal transplants might help. So that work might form the basis for treatments down the track. And you've spoken to someone who's maybe involved in this as well? Yes, yes. So locally, it looks like we might have some trials soon. Um, I spoke with Dr Jessica Green. She's a consultant psychiatrist and PhD student at Deakin University in Geelong about her project. Well, it might seem a bit far-fetched, <laughs> poo as a treatment for mental illness, but we believe it all has to do with the bacteria that live in our gut. Very excitingly, we have just started recruiting for a study looking at whether poo transplants might be an effective treatment for depression. Now, this is just a feasibility study. So Jessica and her crew, they'll be tracking things like mood and gut microbiome, but as well as that, more basic things like safety and is the treatment palatable enough to stick with? Because there's so much we don't know, like 
how often do you need these transplants? How many do you need for the introduced species to really establish themselves and take hold? Who should the donor be? Different donors might be good for different disorders. Everyone's different. One person's poo might be good for you, but not for me. From other other stories I've done, though, like it doesn't have to... I mean, if you're trying to treat a severe disorder, then maybe a transplant is what to do. But there are ways to improve your gut microbiome. Absolutely. I mean, a poo transplant is by far the quickest way of changing it up. So people with C. diff, um, an overgrowth of the bacteria, which is the only um, thing that you can use poo transplants for in Australia. It's the only improved, approved way of getting a poo transplant. Uh, people get relief within hours. But you can do things like change up your diet, your microbiome's affected by who you live with, you share your microbiome with your housemates, including your pets. Ooh. And like, like I said, the, the food thing is like there's this burgeoning uh, field of nutritional psychiatry where what you put into you not only nourishes you, but also nourishes those gut microbes. And they could have wider effects on your health, including mental health. Where are we going to see this in maybe five or 10 years, do you reckon? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm not too sure. I mean, this research, it's, it's coming along, but it's the wheels are turning, but it's a slow kind of process. If you can get over the ick factor, <laughs> what would be ideal is if scientists can identify the specific components of poo and their and their microbiome that can treat diseases, like specific cocktails of microbes or the metabolites they produce, and then tailor them to each person, then that therapy might become much easier to swallow, so to speak, but it'll probably be (laughs) a treatment alongside things like talk therapy and medication. So it won't be a panacea. If anything, it will be something that goes along with everything else that we have. And you've written a story for ABC News uh, about this, Bell, so people can find it by going to the health tab on the ABC News website. And that's not all you're reporting for us today, Belle. And I, <laughs> when I look at what else is on the list, I think maybe you've become our poo correspondent. <laughs> yes, this story is in the same area. You know, I am the poo, poo correspondent well. after all. Well, this one is about stomas. Now, if you don't know what a stoma is, a stoma is a portal in your body. It's most often built in during something like bowel cancer surgery, where a surgeon attaches one end of your intestinal tube to a small hole in your abdominal wall. And a pouch connects that hole and sticks to your belly where it collects your poo. And that gives your bowel, further down the line, a chance to heal. Now, stomas are more common than you might think. I was surprised to find out that at any time, more than 40,000 people in Australia have a stoma. Yeah, some are permanent, others can be reversed, but still it must be quite confronting to be told that you need to poo into a pouch, even if it's just for a few months. So I spoke with Leanne Johnson, a stomal therapy nurse at Logan Hospital in Brisbane. And as this perhaps is not a familiar profession, I asked Leanne about what she does. We are known as fix-its sometimes. So we're, I wouldn't say a dog's body, but we do a bit of everything. So we are trained in wound management, stomal therapy and continence nursing. But the majority of what we do here in my workplace is looking after people with a stoma. And one of your patients last year was Marlene Rogers. Marlene, why did you have the surgery? I had a um, lower bowel cancer. I woke up with the ileostomy, which is uh, connected to my first intestine. I was 
not daunted by finding that because I had very good information from Leanne and her team regarding just what it's about. It certainly is the inside coming out. Inside coming out indeed. But before going into surgery to remove part of your bowel and have the stoma made, how did you feel about it? I must admit I didn't want to go ahead with it because I think there's such a stigma around people with bags on after surgery and I didn't want to go ahead and my family rallied around and I mean I was all for living but as I said the stigma that's uh, connected to a bag is very real until it actually happens to you. I think a lot of people think oh you know you sort of feel like it's a bit of a toad situation that you don't really want to have anything to do with or know anything about. So thanks to your family you went ahead with the surgery and have you had any problems with the stoma or the bag since? The only issue I had was the skin problem. Leanne, do you see many skin problems with stomas? How do they happen? The skin isn't used to being covered 24 hours a day by a glued-on appliance to catch the faecal matter. So the skin under there, if you can imagine, it's a little bit suffocated. The hair follicles are squashed and compounded. People can sweat, especially up here in Queensland with the humidity. The skin concern is a really big issue for us and for anyone with a stoma surgery. And how did Leanne clear up your skin, Marlene? She got a Manuka honey-infused bag to attach and I haven't looked back. I've never had to go back for any further help. And that was, I don't know, about a month, six weeks after. So, I'm, you know, I'm coming up to over six months of having no issues ever since. And I, I sort of refer to it as my first fermentation. Yeah, <laughs> 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 uh, uh, I've got a nurse daughter an RN and she said, mum, it is not the first fermentation. I said, well, I'm telling you, that's what it smells like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. It's actually an interesting point you raised, Marlene, going back a little bit to when you mentioned the stigma of it. And I tell this to most of my, well, to all of my patients in our pre-anesthetic clinic before their surgery, because their immediate reaction is, no, thank you, I'd rather not have a bag on my belly. People are going to see it, people are going to smell it, et cetera. And I always tell them that at any given time in our country, there is between 40 and 45,000 people that have a stoma at any time, be it permanent or temporary. There is a stigma attached, but the appliances, pouches, bags these days, they are so discreet and streamlined and they've all got filters. So really you shouldn't smell anything unless you're taking it off to change it. And hopefully you wouldn't see anything unless you walked around with your T-shirt up saying to people, look what's on my belly. Marlene's stoma is a temporary one, but how do you prepare people who are faced with having a permanent stoma? Essentially, it's the same education, the same support system between a permanent and a temporary stoma. It's when we get to a point, if we know definitively prior that this will be a permanent stoma, then the pressure is on us as the stomal therapy nurses actually to mark the abdomen well. And by that, I mean, we have to look at the belly, which we did with Marlene. We do a full abdominal assessment. We literally draw a mark on the stomach so the surgeon knows where to create the stoma. So if we get that wrong in a known permanent stoma, that can have lifelong implications for the patient. But we generally do tell patients that, you know, this will be your new bum or bottom on your belly. So that can sometimes be a bit of an issue with people thinking, you know, they're never going to go and sit on the toilet and do the natural thing ever again. Marlene, between your diagnosis and surgery, 
you took your family over to Western Australia to swim with whale sharks. Now, I'm supremely jealous of this. Tell me, how did you feel when you first jumped in for a close encounter with a whale shark? You know, you look at them, you can see their eye and they're just a most magnificent animal. Oh, take your breath away. When I first saw it, I just took my breath away. We knew that she did want to do that before she had her surgery and people will try and plan those things, but just really quickly, having a stoma and wearing a stoma bag shouldn't prevent anyone from living a normal life. We can send people off swimming. They can sit in a bathtub for three or four hours. There's no reason they can't return to a sport they used to play, all those sorts of things. So I guess it's just about educating people on what a stoma bag means for somebody and making sure that they retain their quality of life that they had prior to their surgery. So Marlene's testament to that she's gotten on and to look at her now you wouldn't know she's even got a bag under Mm -hmm. her belly or what she's been through so if we can do a little bit as a stomotherapy nurse to help our patients through that then our jobs are done that was leanne johnson a stomal therapy nurse at brisbane's logan hospital and this has been the health report norman will be back next week with tegan we'll see you then you've been listening to an abc podcast discover more great abc podcasts live radio and exclusives on the abc listen app